0: god we just thank you there is nothing like the presence of god (laughs) there is nothing like it in fact tonight eugene bumped me he goes is it time to pray because i was kind of lost at the end there god we love you tonight Mm -hmm. there's nothing like you there's nothing like your presence Nothing can take its place in our life. There's a hole inside of us that only you can fill. And so tonight we come to you as sons and daughters. We don't come to you as orphans with all of our trust issues and our walls up, but we lay all of our walls down as an act of our will. And we just ask you, Lord, teach us how to look like you. We want to look like our daddy. We want to act like our daddy. And for some of us, that's a bigger struggle than others. So, God, help people like me to really let you in. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Wow, that was that was quite some worship, wasn't it? I always think that in, in kind of sessions like that, that there's a a spiritual heart opening that takes place that maybe God really wants what we're going to talk about tonight to get to our hearts because it just feels like after you go through that, you're just like... I need a cigarette or something. You're like, wow. I just, I love times, and I don't smoke. I'm just figure of speech, I guess. Uh, But I think that what what we're kind of going through, it's it's kind of rewiring our heart, isn't it? There's so many things that we've been talking about, and I get so convicted over just the, the ways in which we're kind of questioning the things that we've always said and believed and things that we propagated in our belief system and and I just, I love what God has uh, here for us in uh, what we're going through. And if you catch us for the first time here, we're basically systematically going back through and saying what we believe God to be and his character, his nature, what he's like, his personality, we just reject what religion has taught us. And we're going back into every single attribute which we know about God from what we can learn about his word and first John 4 it says that God is love. And then Paul goes and describes every facet of love. And so therefore we can understand every attribute about God by looking at every attribute about love. And we've been going through each of these. Our first week was love is patient, or God is patient. The second week was love is kind or God is kind. And this week it's God does not envy. And we know the whole verse, we hear it at every wedding. Um, we hear it all the time, right? It's like the most overquoted scripture, but I think it's the most misunderstood scripture. And so we talk that love does not envy and God does not envy. Now, it's funny coming from from my standpoint of this story because I grew up in, in a great home, but I grew up with uh, a brother and sister that were phenomenally gifted. And um, they uh, each were gifted in different ways. My sister was this outstanding athlete that uh, was like first team All-American in every sport and, you know, was on ESPN. I mean, you have ESPN coming to your high school, you're like, really? You know, and uh, my brother was the the same in the academic world where he was showered with accolades, and it seemed like everywhere they would go and and whatever they would do, there'd be like a crowd. be like, oh, do this. You know, my brother's like incredibly gifted musically, And, uh, and so I kind of fit in between there. I was like, you know, kind of musical, but not as musical as my brother. I was kind of athletic, but I didn't make the varsity team. You know, like, I just kind of, like, wasn't there. And I struggled so long in my high school and middle school years with, like, envy and jealousy. Because they had something that, that I wanted. They had an affirmation from people. They had a recognition of their abilities. And so I, I wrestled with this just life paralysis of envy for most of my life. And when we say love does not envy, it's kind of one of those like overstated things. I might as well say love does not murder. You're kind of like, yeah, I get it. you know. But when we actually unpack the facets of envy, which I know very, very well, and we unpack what we think and we say about God and we, we kind of look at how these things line up to what really this text is saying, we actually come to realize that we believe many lies about God. In envy, there are three forms in which we uh, that we take every day, and I believe that we pass along every day. And sometimes lies are, are slow evolving, right? Sometimes it takes generations for a lie and a misconception to become reality for us. I think these things are, are things that have been started generations ago that all of a sudden we just don't know where we got. But the three forms of envy that I'm going to talk about tonight, they leave everybody in receive mode, Envy is all about oneself, and leaves everybody always expecting something, and the first one is the desire for attention, the second is lust, and the third is jealousy, the three facets of envy. The first is the desire for attention. The desire for attention is something that I struggle with because my, my brother and sister, they were getting so much attention, I wanted that attention, I wanted the attention to, to have people look and marvel at what I did, and I didn't have anything, you know, and it was, it was a bummer. And, and we, we crave and we desire people's interest in us. Every single one of us, I believe, it's just one of those factory defaults that comes with our human genome that we desire the attention and the adoration of others. And it helps us, like, justify our worth somehow that if we have, you know, a number of people, like, everybody in this room has got to check, like, their Facebook and, like, looked at how many friends they have and probably felt a little better or worse about themselves, Right? <laughs> I mean, there's something about that, like, we, we, we place this interest of ourselves, and we, we give ourselves value based on that, and it, it, it validates us somehow, and it's really kind of weird, but, but if you go to the mall, if you go to, like, Macy's downtown, and you go to the jean department, people don't shop for clothes anymore, right? People try on a pair of jeans, they go stand in front of the mirror, and what is the first thing they do? Hmm? Right? The first thing they do is they, how does my butt look good? I'm not buying something to wear on my legs. I'm doing something to shape my butt. You know, they're like, what, what do other people think about this angle of me? You know, they're not really thinking about much else. You know, and, and guys do it too. I'm not picking on anybody in particular. But at first, I mean, we're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it basically for others. How good do other people think I look based on what I'm seeing in the mirror? You know, like the, the blouse, you're like, well, we can't have the buttons up here, you know, and you start, whoa, too far, you know, and you, you kind of like, correct, you, you, you kind of got to get like the right amount where it's like, interesting for other people, but not enough to get someone to talk to you about it, you know, like, <laughs> it's funny, because it's true. And then there are people that are addicted to being the center of attention, right? I mean, you could come back and, and, you know, Eugene and Angela came back from Hawaii and someone could say, yeah, I came back from Hawaii. And someone would jump in, well, I've been to Hawaii ten times. When I was there, I did this, you know. And you're like, welcome to the conversation, you know. And, and, and there, there's this need to be affirmed and have eyes and attention on us. It's, it's envy. The second is lust. We say that love doesn't envy, but envy is the very inception of love for so many of us. We wouldn't approach someone for a dating interest if we weren't attracted to them. Have you ever tried to set someone up with a friend that they don't know? I heard of, what is the very first thing you do? You pull up Facebook, right? Right? Come on. So you're like, yeah, hey, hey, you know, Janet, like, I got this friend, Timmy, you know, he's like super cool. And she's like, we got a picture of him? Yeah, you know, and you pull up Facebook, and you're like, oh, his profile picture sucks, you know, and you're like, you're going through albums, and you're like, you know, he, here, here's a picture, and, and, and they're like, oh, he looks nice. You're like, well, let me find a better one, right? And you're like, he doesn't always have the handlebar mustache, but, you know, I'll, I'll get this here. And then you're like, you feel pressure, like you've got to get like a good photo, you know? And like, I've done it with you guys. Like, I'm like, come on, why do they have to have that as their profile picture this month, you know? But we've learned that unless there's a, a trace amount of lust, we won't engage in romantic interests. I think that God had something kind of going for him when he designed marriages originally to be something that, you know, the parents decided for the kids, which being a father, I think, is a great idea these days. Because basically, in that original design, it wasn't like God set out, you know, Adam, and here's like 40 women. Now check them out. I got redheads. I got blondes. He's just like, this is your wife. He's like, well, I don't have any other options, so it's good. But don't we, like, in our dating relationships, don't we have this element of minimum threshold lust trace, right? That kind of helps us gauge Am I going to entertain this, or am I not? And my all-time pet peeve, because I, I um, let me say this correctly, I wasn't the most attractive guy in high school. I didn't have women clamoring all over me. I had a really rough year, or four, in college, <laughs> and high school. And, um, and so there's this girl that like, I really, I mean, she was way out of my league, and I'm married way out of my league already, but this girl in high school uh, was really attractive, and, and I was like, oh, you're getting the, the whole gumption to, like ask her, and And you know, she told me, she's like, that she's dating God. I was like, how do you compete with that? I, I I, I was expecting not into you. You need a different deodorant. How many bottles of cologne are you wearing? I was prepared for anything at that moment. I wasn't prepared that she was in a relationship with God, which later I actually translated in girl to mean actually, I don't find you attractive enough to go on a date with you yet. Because the next week she's with, you know, some captain of some team. You know, you're like, gosh, like why can't we just be honest and truthful where we're at? But it, a part of it's human nature. But we even select friends based on affinities and, and hey, this guy also snowboards or this person's also from your town and, and we, we base things based on interest and perceived benefit to ourselves with people. And the third is jealousy. Ever experienced someone that is in, in a jealous-based relationship? Have you ever um, been in a relationship where the other person is jealous? It's a nightmare. It is a total, total nightmare. They call like five times. Like now, now we have like caller ID on our phones, you know, so if someone's blown up your phone, you're like, you called me nine times, really, you know? They leave texts. Hey, did you get my call? Did you get my voicemail? They, like, drive by slowly. I was in the neighborhood, you know, they're in their pajamas. You're like, doing what? (laughs) They they get obsessive. They, They snoop. They lie. They're always in a state of paranoia, right? Man, like, I remember in college, I was dating somebody who was incredibly jealous. It actually made me feel good for, like, the first day. I was like, sweet, the tables are turned. But it suddenly became about, like, well, what'd you do last night? I was like, hey, uh, you know, hang out with some friends. Were there any girls there? Yeah. What were their names? Uh, Sarah, Stephanie, Jennifer. Oh, okay. Who'd you drive with? Uh, Tom. Was Stephanie there? <laughs> you like, This feels like a game in a trap, you know? And jealousy at its core is about frantic self-protection. It paralyzes the person in constant fear. And a jealous person is never satisfied, ever. You can lock that boyfriend up or that girlfriend up or whatever, and you can take their phone, you can take their computer, you can confiscate their Facebook, you can do everything, and you can have them in a lockbox box in a chair staring at you, and they still will not be satisfied. And they'll be like, I know you've been thinking about somebody else right now. You know, There's just no end. But one thing I've learned about being in a relationship with someone who's jealous is that not only are jealous people crazy, <laughs> I mean, because they're like disconnecting brakes of people's cars, right? But, they, but what they don't realize is that jealousy is killing the very thing that they want. The jealousy does not cause you to be in any more love with that person. It's a huge turn-off, amen? Here's a big turn-on is self-confidence. I think that drove me nuts about Camille is uh, when we were dating, like, she would never return a phone call, a text. I mean, it was always like, I always well, she would return it, but I always have to initiate it. And I got so like psychologically wigged out by it. I was like, she keeps going on dates with me, but we would never talk again if I don't do something. But it was was so amazing, because it was such the opposite side of jealousy. It was like, whoa, like I have to, you know, I have to be a good person. I have to like be me. I have to like really kind of step up my game. And the self-confidence and the self-security about it is actually what gave us tremendous peace in our dating relationship. Because when she gave me that, I was able to give it to her in return, and then our dating relationship actually was probably the first pure relationship that we had where it wasn't always suspect. Our relationship wasn't always under investigation. And the thought of paranoia and romantic relationships is terrible for anybody who's ever been there. It almost The relationship can not, almost never survive if there's... I'm enough paranoia, because you can never can get over that. There's always another question. There's always another angle to think about it. And, and how this all relates is that Christianity and our relationship with God has become so twisted with these three things. And that, that's why this series is like sometimes the truth is so simple it offends us. But every day we say things that are, are affirming that God desires attention, that he is lustful, and that he's jealous. Let's start with seeking attention. God is not trying to grab the attention of people. He's, trying, he's not trying to bring attention upon himself. God is not trying to impress. He's not trying to steal attention. He's not trying to interrupt somebody's conversation. You know, in John chapter 6, Jesus is there, and he had actually a lot more disciples than just 12. There's a whole bunch of them, and, and he's doing things, and, and so the people didn't like what was going on. They didn't like what he was saying. that was making them awkward. He definitely was not people-pleasing. He didn't have, like, this huge following But the the significant following he did, like, they all left him. He's left with the 12, and he's like, are you two going to leave me? And you know what they said? They're like, we don't have a place to go. (laughs) you're like, way to stick in with me, right? You're with me because there's no better place to go. But we think that uh, that God is like trying to artificially season himself, be the cherry on top of things, and I just don't think God does it. I don't think that you know, he, he, when he's going to do a miracle, he doesn't grab a whole bunch of people and he's like, come come check this out. This is going to be great. You know, get them on the stage. Can we get a little more lighting? You know, like he's not doing that. You know, and when the miracle comes, he's not like, ta-da! You know, he's like, did you see that? Did you see, That's not his character at all. God doesn't get angry when someone wins an Oscar and they don't thank God like they always do. It's like the token God mentioned in, in receiving an Oscar award. I want to thank God because he made it all possible. I just like throw up, you know? sorry. (laughs) But I think that we get worried for ourselves that God's not getting enough attention. God isn't worried about getting enough attention, but sometimes we're worried for God on his behalf. When we evangelize, we kind of do the whole Macy's routine. We, We just can't give Jesus as is. We don't feel confident enough about Jesus' heart for which people as Is We kind of have to, like, sex God up, don't we? We kind of have to give people a way in which they can receive Jesus, receive the understanding of salvation, but have it kind of be not as offensive, not as, you know, whatever. It's the same thing as, like, taking Jesus into a dressing room and putting on a pair of jeans and, like, checking out his butt and be like, well, we need a different pair, you know? It's like, it's the very same thing when we try to add to the gospel, when we get away from God's heart. When we get away from the heart of the eternal God in our hearts, we're just sexing up God. Whenever it's anything besides the heart of Jesus to have sons and daughters that have intimate relationship with Him, it's propaganda. It's salesmanship. It's an infomercial. So many times, like I listen to people how they try and sell Jesus, and you'd think they're going to say like, "But wait, now if you call, there will double your order." It's like it doesn't make any sense. Instead, we should be saying, how would you like to have a one-on-one conversation with the creator of the universe every day of your life? How would it be if we we said, how would you like to have coffee with the the person who put the stars in the sky, who put the breath in your nostrils? How would you like to have a coffee with him every single morning of your life? And say, I can introduce you to him. It would be so much better of a way to evangelize God is not lustful either. Now that seems kind of foreign, but often, I don't know about you, but I for the longest time believed that God was attracted to some people more than others. I would, uh, I would feel that he was more attracted to someone who could pray better than I could, that he could you know, spend more time with someone who could teach the Bible. I used to think that God really loved missionaries more. I know it sounds kind of funny, but like, I kind of thought there's like, this holy scale that like, what are you doing with your life it kind of determines God's You know, love for you. It seems crazy, right? I think that, well, Jesus screens my prayers, but he answers the prayers like the pastors, you know, and the the people that are really holy. Um, But God doesn't desire any more from them than he desires from us. God is not seeking any celebrity or pro athlete to get saved because they are famous. He has no criteria in which he wants to have a relationship. I used to pray all the time that Michael Jordan would get saved. I thought that it would be a great favor to Christianity if Michael Jordan got saved. i thinking like, well just think of all the people that will know Jesus if he just gets saved. And it's, it's, it's lust, is it not? Tell me that's not lust, that you look at somebody and, and you think what having them will do for you. When we look at something or somebody and say, what will having them do for me, that is lust. And that's the very same mentality that we have when we get excited about politicians or athletes or sports teams, coaches. You you hear like a pastor say, yeah, we got the lead singer, this one band. He's coming to our church or, or whatever. That's cool. I get it. But God is no more excited for Michael Jordan to get saved than a homeless man to get saved. Amen? But we mistakenly believe that the kingdom of God will have a bigger impact on earth depending on the person who gets saved. And that would imply that God wants some people to be saved more than other people, and it's just not right. It's lustful. <clears throat> and the other thing that God's been re- revealing to me is that he's 100% satisfied with you. He's not 100% satisfied with Billy Graham and you're like at 15%. He's like 100% satisfied with you all the time. And any imperfection, the great term we have for it is unredeemed flesh. There's, there's parts of us where we don't act as who we are. And God is okay with that, but he is satisfied. If you are his son and daughter, that is the only criteria that gives him satisfaction. Everything else is religion. Everything else is trying. And God is pursuing you just as much as he's pursuing Billy Graham or any theologian. And I would think that God would pick favorites based on someone's charisma or, or their ability to, to speak well. And, and I would think that Bill Johnson would get extra revelation because he's such a great, you know, speaker. Or that Earl McManus was so charismatic that he would get these great analogies. And, and I thought that, that God would play favorites on where he's going to bestow spiritual giftings based on someone's, you know, natural ability. And so it, it, what it made me do is it made me never want to actually get involved in ministry because I thought the game was rigged. It's like, I don't have any of these things. I never wanted to do this in my life just for reference. I love this, but this was never my plan or idea. But what started, what my idea was is I said, God, I'll never be able to preach, I'll never be able to teach, I'll never be able to pastor, I'll never be able to lead these things. I just wanna be effective in the kingdom. Can you just give me that? Can I just be effective in the kingdom? And slowly by slowly, I find myself here. So it's kinda crazy. (laughs) But the point in that is that whatever you desire in the kingdom, God has made available to all of his children. God has made everything in the kingdom available to all of his children who seek and ask. Now there's a difference between seeking and asking. You guys, some of you know that I hate running, so I'm going to use a running analogy. (laughs) Um, When you say, I want to run a marathon, you are basically making known a desire. That's the same thing as asking, God, you know, I want to preach a sermon. Now, that's just asking, right? That's making your desire known. The seeking part is not just like all of a sudden you are made available to run a marathon the next day. You ask, you know, God, I want to run a marathon. The next day, you suddenly have that ability. Maybe. It doesn't typically work like that. What happens next is that you seek. What does seeking look like? It means that you run around the block once, exhausted, and go and have a milkshake. The next day, you run around the block twice. Maybe you have half of a milkshake. The next day, you run a half a mile and so forth. And, and, and that is how you run a marathon. You don't just simply say, I want to run a marathon. It's like, God, send it. He's like, it's available to those who are going to seek it. And so many things in the kingdom, I think, go to waste. So many Christian lives will go to waste every single day because they asked, but they didn't seek it. And so if you have any desire in the kingdom... Asking is just the first step. It's great making that desire know, but seeking is the most significant part. And what happens when you do that is that you mature. You mature slowly but surely. And this has been revealed to me with my daughter because, uh, you know, when, when babies are young, all you basically do is you like make sure their their neck doesn't like move awkwardly, and you just hold them. But now, like our daughter's like walking and she's like talking now, and so her maturity is releasing new possibilities for our relationship. The same thing is with our spiritual walk. If you are dissatisfied with the depth of your spiritual walk, maybe it should be a a suggestion to look at your spiritual maturity. Because our spiritual maturity will determine the possibilities in our relationship with God. My daughter can't ride a roller coaster yet, (laughs) but we're going to someday. And maybe we should be thinking about that in our relationship with God, is when I grow up in the Lord, I'm going to do this there'd be a much better way to look at our growth. We can be okay. I'm the slowest growing fool you've ever met. But at least I'm growing. And so many of you are growing. And we must know that the maturing of the process, the maturing of who we become, actually is releasing new possibilities that we really crave. Now finally, the thing I want to talk most specifically on is the most twisted form of envy, which is jealousy. The Old Testament, God himself even describes himself in Exodus 20, that he's a jealous God. James 4, 5 says, He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell within us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now, if God is love and love does not envy, what do we do about verses like this? The first thing is to understand that jealousy in of itself has Multifacets. The first two kind of facets we understand, if you just look in the, in the dictionary, basically means intolerant to rivalry or unfaithfulness. The second means hostile towards a rival. But the third means vigilant in guarding and protecting. Vigilant and guarding and protecting. The form of earthly jealousy which we all know is about insecurity and self preservation. Sorry. The form of righteousness, the form of righteous jealousy is all about security and protecting you. The form of earthly jealousy is all about insecurity and self-preservation. The form of righteous jealousy is all about security and protecting you. Now, a carnal, like what we're talking about, like the earthly, basically means that someone got what you want. They have what you want A righteous jealousy is preserving and protecting someone else on their behalf. Much different. Is that making sense? to you guys with me? There was somebody who started a dating relationship, and it was clear that this was a recipe for disaster. The guy was completely egocentric. He was careless with his words. He was careless about protecting her and her purity. And the story goes that she goes, and, and no, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine, but she gives her virginity to him, she gives her body to him, and then he, he moves on. And she's left heartbroken, but all the while we're like, man, you got to be careful, there's signs here. And the accusation back is like, well, you're jealous because I'm going to be happy. And was like, ugh, it feels weird. But now that I understand the righteous jealousy, that I, I, have, I have nothing to gain from, from you in a relationship or not, I just don't want to see your heart hurt. And God has a jealousy for us, not out of, I don't want you to have something, but the full perspective and the full vision of saying, man, you're about to walk into Heartbreak Hotel right now. And you're going to be wishing that you never did this. But unfortunately, our human perspective of jealousy, as we're describing, has attached itself to our faith. In our heart, I believe that most of us feel that God is jealous and he is envious of us. We believe God to be selfish and insecure and kind of like that psycho jealousy, right? Because someone doesn't want you to have life and and friends of your own if they're really jealous. And sometimes we actually refer to our faith about things being in competition with God. And if there's one thing that you can get from tonight, it's that God is not in competition in any area of your life. Because if he has your heart, that's the only thing he wants. He doesn't want your car. He doesn't want your job. He doesn't want your gift. He doesn't want your relationship. He just wants your heart. That's it. That's the only thing that he can have that he wants. And when we understand that, and we look at the other things that we say, it's amazing how we describe the heart of God in such repulsive and jealous terms. We say things like, God wants you to give him your life. That sounds totally normal, right? Our theme verse is John 10.10, it says, he came to give you give you life and life more abundantly. How on earth are we giving we have a God that gives life and then is asking for it back? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? We kind of understand what what he wants. He wants our heart. He doesn't want our life. God would never ask you for you to give him your life back because he's the one who's given it to you in the first place. You would never want the gift back. Like he, let's say you, you give someone an amazing present. You give it to them. Crystal, here's your present. And you're like, awesome. And then like a day later, he's like, here's your present back. And you're like, feel like it's totally the right thing to do. And God's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. But only an envious God would give something and then ask it in return. He gave it to you so that you could enjoy it to the fullest. But with that jealous aspect that he wants us to enjoy, but he doesn't want our heart to be broken because the heart is the only thing that he gets but it it, it makes sense to me now why new Christians falter because we tell them like, just give God your life just give God your life and so they give they, they, they give their salvation in return for giving their life but their life doesn't actually change in two months and so then they fall away from the faith Because them giving their life didn't actually produce anything because we sold the wrong thing. When we're selling anything about a lifestyle, anything about a better circumstance for your life, we're just selling God. We're not giving a heart. So then you ask, well, why does God want you to give you, why does God want, hold on here. (laughs) Why does God want you to give him your life? And the common answer is so he can use me. And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. Now let's just think about that. So God can use me. Have you ever been in a relationship where someone is totally just using you? It sucks. You have somebody who always calls you because they always need that ride at like 2 in the morning, and it's the only reason they call you? Or maybe they, maybe they always only call you when they need money. Or maybe you have something. Maybe a, a connection. Maybe there's something that, that is the only reason they're coming to you is to actually use you for something else. Folks, God is not interested in using you like we think. Because that would imply that God is in this relationship for himself. He's not in relationship just for himself. When we say that God wants to use us in some way to further his purposes. We're truly saying something awful about his heart. We refer to God using us as a believe that that is all that he is, is in this for. That's the only reason he saved us, so that he could use us. Look, the Old Testament, God used a donkey to talk. He doesn't need us to do anything if he wants to do it himself. But this mentality has gotten us into uh, this mindset where our prayers become pleading sessions. God, use me, use me. And I hear it the most with people who don't have intimacy with God. They don't have intimacy with God, and so their substitute prayer is God use me, because they think that if God uses me enough, I'll be intimate with him. And it's totally the opposite. I really think that we have no use in the kingdom if we don't know the heart of God. If we're trying to figure out what religious activity do I need to do, we have totally missed the boat. And that very thought, buckle up. I didn't warn you last time I did this. But that very thought that God would ever want to use you and never have your heart actually is saying that God would prefer a whore over a wife. (laughs) I'm not going to repeat that one. I'm just going to let that one sit. (laughs) But when we have true intimacy with God, we realize that God is completely fulfilled in the relationship just having our heart. I've encountered so many people in ministry, I, I don't know why this is, but people that are in ministry, sometimes are the most broken people that you can meet, that, where their life is in total shambles. It's terrible. And there's so few people in ministry who actually say, I want my life to look like yours. And they justify it because they say, well, God is using me in this. And I don't really think that God will ask you to ruin your marriage for the sake of your gifts. I don't think our gifts are needed in the kingdom that much if it ruins the God covenant of a marriage or the covenant of of a father with his kids. I don't think God receives any glory by saying, you did an awesome message but when you went home and treated your wife that way, you negated every good word you said. I don't think God is honored by that. It's amazing that we can tolerate Spiritual leaders that are great orators, people who have profound revelation, but in their personal life, they're so broken and they're harming everybody in their path. I meet people constantly who you're like, wow, that is the, one of the best speakers I've ever heard. And you look at how they treat the people around them. It's just carnage. And it's like kind of poisoned me from ever like being able to like listen to him again. But then you ask, okay, so let's say God uses uses you. So why does God want to use you? And often the response is, so I can glorify God. Sounds pretty religious, right? So I can glorify God. It seems like, oh, maybe I was created to glorify God. Let me tell you that it might break your heart. We, as fleshly humans, we cannot contribute anymore to his glory. We actually have no, we have no role in, in God's glory. God's glory is fully self-sufficient. It's self sufficient. We recognize his glory, definitely. We're like, you are awesome. In, in worship, I just was praying, God, you've exceeded in every area of my life. You've exceeded. And for that, you are glorious because you are the only God that exceeds. You are the only thing in this life that's, that exceeds. And we're not here to worship God either. We, we think that, that God needs more glory or God needs more worship, and it's just not true. Do you know that if you open the book of Revelation chapter 4, there's like four creatures, one of them's a lion with eyeballs on all sides of its head with six wings, day and night saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How do you compete with that? I mean, Really? why now so begs the question why do we worship we don't worship because god is a narcissist and says, i need things to worship me it's like if, if i wanted adoration from my daughter and someone hands me a piece of paper and says daddy you're the greatest but i downloaded it or it was given to me it has no meaning it's just words on a sheet of paper but Scarlett can put like ink in her hands and she can like make like this puddle of ink and give it to me and i'm touched forever Worship is only valuable if you know the heart that you're connecting with. Other than that, it's just it's worship. It's noise. It sounds good. But worship is only authenticated when your heart is authenticated with his heart. Coming into a place and just singing words on, on a screen and having your whole rest of your being checked off doesn't bring God in glory. He's not like, yes, I checked the box. I got enough people singing now, it sounds good. God doesn't need any more glory, his glory is self sufficient, God doesn't need any more worship. He's got creatures with eyeballs everywhere worshiping them. But the thing about it is, is that because we choose God and we know his heart, every single word that comes from your heart is pleasing to him. That's why we worship. It's because we engage. Worship is a, a facet of relationship that we have, and so we engage in relationship, and that pleases Him. Sometimes we feel that God's not getting enough glory from our lives, and so we feel that whatever burden or gift that we have has to be the Christian version of it. I struggled for the longest time. My greatest business challenge, right here. My greatest business challenge was, do I run a Christian company? I didn't know what that meant. But that was like the burden. It's like, okay, I really love business. But then this huge weight about actually running a Christian business was like this huge burden. You see, with people that are gifted in rap or music, like they feel this obligation to always do Christian rap or always do Christian music. Like we would be so pissed if Chris Tomlin came out with a song talking about a breakup, like a Taylor Swift song. You'd be like, that is the dumbest song I've ever heard. And then we'd turn on, you know, Taylor Swift. I'm never, ever, you know, like we'd be told totally into that. We, we've labeled these people that are talented and kind of pegged them to the Christian version of that gift, that you can never do it or else you're cheating on God with your gift. And for a long time, it kind of stopped like me from actually enjoying life. I kind of felt like I, I got a car, I got to get the Jesus sticker. You know, I, you know like this... <laughs> It's this burden, like I used to have like the WJD, whatever, I had the, the, the push, you know, I remember like the big tethers that you have like on your keys I said push, pray until something happens, you know, you have all these things and like there's this obligation like whatever I have and whatever God's given me, I have to plaster it with Christianity because it's the only way I can thank God for it. Maybe God's liberating you to say, I've given you gifts for your enjoyment. I've given you everything for your enjoyment because I'll tell you what, Scarlett could have the cleanest room, she could have the best grades, but if she is not fulfilled, if she is broken, my heart's broken, and I don't care about anything else. And maybe we're looking at our lives and we're like, man, I've got life kind of figured out. I've got a car, I've got a job, I've got a relationship, you know, I've got these things, and you're a total broken mess. You gotta know that God's not pleased with the car, the relationship, the job because the only thing he's focused on is the heart. But he has this mentality that, or we have this mentality that God wants all thinking, all eyes on him all the time, for everything. I got a, um, uh, I felt bad. I bought myself a dirt bike, uh, a a pretty good one. And I, I felt really bad for a long time. And I talked to, like, my mentors, like, man, it's a lot of money, like, and, and the guilt is like, I could build half of a school in El Salvador for this dirt, you know, and, and we, we get in these comparative minds, and he's like, gosh, dang it, Eric, would you just, like, enjoy the stupid dirt bike? God wants you to enjoy that thing. Go buy it. Go buy it now, you know? And that thing has been the funnest thing I've ever had, and it has been great, and you know what? When you understand who the gift giver is, the gift doesn't become an idol. You can have an idol come into your life when you don't know the source of the gift, when you think it came at your own hands. But when you look at every good thing, when you look at your awesome car, if you've got a great car, hallelujah, I'm so stoked for you. As long as you know who the gift giver is, it's not idolatry. God's not concerned. He's not competing for attention with it. And it helped me kind of liberate, like, wow, like, God cares about the details. He knows, like that, this brings me joy, and so if I'm if I'm feeling joyful, He's feeling joyful. As long as I don't hurt my heart, because that's what He gets. Am I making sense? Let me rattle you with this last thing, on this very topic. When we look at the the things we receive from God, it could be gifts, it could be a talent, it could be fill in the blank, anything. When we, f- when we receive that, there's such a burden that all of us feel that we can't enjoy until we make sure everybody knows who gets the glory for it. You get up there, amazing worship, awesome worship guys, and they're like, it's all God, you know. Cool. I think you did a really good job, though. You know, like, yes, Jesus was here, but you did a really good job. And we, we try and do like this deflecting. We, we, we feel obligated. We, we can't receive a compliment on its own, Right. Everybody feels that burden. You did an awesome job on that song. I love that. I saw your, you know, and you're like, it's all, it's all good. I didn't do anything, you know? Like, it, it, like, we all in, are inclined to that. So never do that again, and here's why. When someone pays you a compliment, and say thank you, wow, that blesses me. Thank you. And just end it there. Because here is what we're really doing. I'm going to give you a story. Let's say I buy a Camille a dress, and it compliments Camille, makes her look gorgeous in every way. And then she goes out, but I say, well, I'm giving you this dress. It's expensive. It's beautiful. It's your favorite color. It's everything. But when you go out, you need to make sure that you tell people who bought you that dress. Right? And making her promise that anytime someone gives you a compliment, you just tell them who bought that dress. Now let's say, what now now what kind of husband would I be? I would have my face on America's most wanted if I was that husband. Because in essence, it's really saying, no, my wife is really ugly if it wasn't for me that bought the dress for her. And what we're really saying when we say, well, God gets all the glory, it's like, really, no, I really suck, but God helped me not suck just then. <laughs> Amen? And even worse is, is if what if all of a sudden I got insecure because too many compliments are coming to my wife about that dress and I make her return that dress. There's a fear that if we ever have our gifting and we get too much glory that God will take it from us. It's totally not his heart. It'd be like, Camille, I told you. You tell everybody that I get the glory for buying you that dress, so give me the receipt. We're taking it back. It's the very same thing. And it just proves that we have an insecure, jealous, psycho God who doesn't want you to do anything except for him. And he's just saying, that's so not me. I know you're used to that. I know that you do that. But it's not me. In all of this, and let's have the band come up. I'm sorry, I'm going a little long tonight. All of this has produced God's children repeating the same lies about themselves, saying, I am nothing. We think it's really christian We we think we're like, we're we're like really good Christians and we say, I'm nothing. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, which that's not in the Bible. I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's not in the Bible. That's not who you are. The moment you become saved, you become a royal priest. You become a daughter and son of the king. So let's get that right. (laughs) But we talked about how we're such wretched sinners and how we're, you know, man, I'm so, I'm so terrible and, and I just need God. I need God's grace because I just need him so bad. Can you imagine, I know a lot of you don't have kids, but imagine your son or daughter being like, always, oh, I'm just so bad without you. I'm just so terrible. I'm just so wretched. It wouldn't be the most depressing daughter ever. <laughs> You're like... how can I put this another way? You know, like everywhere in the Bible, if we're not reading the Bible and finding out what Jesus thinks about us being exactly the way he wants us to be, if we are not reading that he is affirming that we are righteous in his sight, when we come to him with our sin, we should expect that he says, I don't know what you're talking about, and move on. But we use sarcasm to downplay anything that good comes our way. We sarcasm. We use deflection. Any victory in our life, we try and minimize it. Oh, well, it's just not there yet. We never give ourselves permission to be okay in the kingdom. I'm telling you it's okay to be okay in the kingdom. I'm telling you it's okay to say, man, I really kicked butt at that and it was awesome. It's OK to say that. It's okay to feel. It. when we know we're the source, when we know what is giving us breath in our lungs, when we know what is empowering us, it's totally OK, and God is totally glorified in it. But it's produced a false limitation upon God's children, because someone who says that they're nothing will make sure that their life proves themselves right. If you spend your entire life saying, "I'm nothing, I'll never do anything." I, like, called a guy out on Twitter today. It's like, his bio says, I'm nothing, I'll never reach greatness. And I just texted him, like, or tweeted him, like, yeah, change your bio. Like, you will never do anything of significance as long as that's how you're identifying yourself. Because we don't like to prove ourselves liars, right? If you... Here, here's a bonus for tonight, okay? If you want to be in a relationship and you are out there saying, I will never be in a relationship, Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. You will prove yourself right. Our words are powerful. When you say those things, we call those word curses, when you say those things, you will allow your behaviors, your actions, actually to prove yourself right because no one likes to be wrong, especially after they've said something. No one ever likes to be like pointed out, like, remember you said that? Well, you're wrong. It's a terrible feeling. But we need to be able to speak life about who God really says about us. And God is most glorified, most glorified, and you being the real you, which is being a son and a daughter. Not someone who continually puts themselves down. This is the last thing, a quote from Bill Johnson. And it says, I can't afford to have thoughts in my head about me that God doesn't have in his. It's impossible to be consistently effective in fulfilling his purposes Unless I am continually training my mind to think of myself according to what God says about me. Let me read that last part again. It is impossible to be consistently effective in fulfilling His purposes unless I am continually training my mind to think of myself according to what God says about me. Amen? Let's stand and pray.
0: If our prayer team could come up, we're going to spend some time in worship tonight. I hope that the message that you're starting to realize in your spirit, man, is that you should be celebrating yourself. And if you don't know how to do that, and that doesn't speak to your spirit tonight, you're in an an orphaned state. I know that's a bold statement to make. Um, I've been coming out of that, and I'm a real slow learner. I'm 57 years old. And God's been setting me free from that mentality. It's an ongoing, ongoing, progressive thing. But what God's beginning to show me is that I need to celebrate how he made me. I'm the only me that's ever going to live. You are the same way. And to the level that you don't, the, the word says that you were purposely put together by God in Jeremiah And so if you don't celebrate who you were, then to the level that you personally don't celebrate how God made you to that level, God's who he is will never be as real in the world as he meant for it to be. So you're precious to him tonight. If the band can start, and we're just going to spend some time worshiping and praying. If we can pray for you and help you step more into the celebration of yourself and understanding how God made you, We would love to serve you like that tonight, so please come forward.